Dana Gould Hour. Jungle worms and swamp rats run around your feet. I fought a dog that killed the calf that ate the canary. What is truth? And once again, welcome back. Hello, and welcome back to the Dana Gould Hour podcast. We have a grand show. It's grand. One of the smartest, funniest comedians out there, Beth Stelling, is here today. Beth is not only a phenomenally talented stand-up, she is a terrific writer, and she has a new special coming out called If You Didn't Want Me Then, Beth Stelling. Also, author Ed Canfield is here to talk about his book, Fact, Fictions, and the Forbidden Predictions of the Amazing Criswell. That's right, Plan 9 from Outer Space's Criswell. And as usual, truth is stranger than fiction. Mr. Criswell, God bless him, was a delightful five-star nutball with a shithouse crazy wife. Hooray! Let's get into it. Two Tales from Weirdsville takes a look back to a time when conspiracies were actually harmless fun. Things you could enjoy and indulge in, even if you liked Jewish people. It's true. There really was such a time. Specifically, we're looking at the radio show that defined an era, Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM. If you don't know what I'm talking about, oh my lord, just you wait. Little bit of news. Uh, I'm not touring this summer because I was supposed to be working on another movie with Mr. Goldthwaite, but the strike has put the production on hold. And we are also holding, out of deference to the WGA, Hanging with Dr. Z's third season. A strike's a strike. But please know when it is resolved, we're all getting right back to work. By then, Dr. Z will be cut and ready to go, and blah, 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 whatever else you want me to say. Also, last episode, I thanked all of you guys for your kindness and generosity regarding my friend Jackie Brown. And now, a word from Ms. Brown herself. Hey, guys. Um, This is Jackie Brown. I wanted to come back on Dana's podcast and say thank you. Uh, I was on a few months ago, if you heard it, the episode um, talking about my heart attack and car accident and um, fundraising to be able to get treatment. And um, I didn't really know what to expect. I was just so grateful that Dana was giving me an opportunity to talk about what happened and then his listeners, you guys just showed up and you um, not only donated and made getting treatment possible, but I received so many messages from you and just seeing the outpouring of love and support from complete strangers, it just like blew my mind. Um, More than just helping me financially, you guys have helped me um, mentally get through this. And it's totally changed my life. Um, I'm about three months into treatment and keep getting good news. I'm not only feeling better, my pain is down, my numbness in my hands and my feet is down, um, but also um, doctors don't think I have to get back surgery anymore, spine surgery. And that is like, God, no one wants to get that done. So 
the fact that I am healing and showing a trend of um, getting better and not needing surgery is huge. Um, yeah, I've just been going to treatment like it's my job. And all of that is thanks to you guys. And um, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who have donated, to re- who have reached out. Thank you so much again, Dana, for having me on here. And um, just wanted to give you guys a little update and just to let you know that like you really changed my life and I'm really grateful. So I'm such a sap, sorry, but I just wanted to say thank you. And um, I've seen all your messages, all your comments, and it just, um, it means the world to me. So thank you. Lastly, if you like the show, please consider being a Dana Gould Hour Sky Cadet. Go to danagould.com and sign up for our Patreon. Five bucks a month gets you extra audio, video, and some junk. We don't have graduated levels. Five bucks a month and you get some stuff. Don't be a shy cadet. Be a Sky Cadet. It's a simple deal for complicated times. And now, It's on to our filthy business. It is a balmy sun dapple day high atop the Mulholland view shelf <laughs> here at Falcon's Lair Recording Studios. I'm surrounded by sleeping dogs and awake women. <laughs> 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 Langris cats, sleeping dogs, and awake women. Um, my guest today, one of the uh, one of the funnier comedians in uh, <laughs> Los Angeles, a consistently entertaining, uh, a great writer, and uh, really, really funny comedian. She has a new special coming out, venue pending, called "If You Didn't Want Me Then." But we want her right now. <laughs> Beth Stelling is here. So quick, you are. I should be spinning top 40 hits. Yeah. We haven't, no one's replaced Casey Kasem. Let's be real. No. And I, and I could, I would also like to get Don on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I think that, that is so soothing to me. If, if somebody were to play it, they still, if I were freaking out or something, <laughs> play Casey Kasem's voice. <laughs> getting, getting angry. Yeah. You, do you've heard that you've heard him snap. You've heard that. Do you know what that is? I don't think I have. Oh God. It's a great, it's an outtake of Casey Kasem going, uh, this is going out to a little dog. It's a it's a a, a dog named Snuggles. And God damn it, you know you come out of those up tempo numbers, man, and then you got to go into a goddamn death dedication. <laughs> God, is Don on the phone? Get Don on the phone. Get Don on the fucking phone. And I want to know what happened to those pictures they were supposed to send me. Into a goddamn death dedication. <laughs> it's like when you know you have to. I, I'm sure you've had a benefit that you've done that's like super sad, and then they want you to do comedy after oh, yeah. it. Oh, a my. very sad video. 
It was like one a, day I will right. have skin again. I know, and now the like, comedy of best selling. I know. I'm like, no. <laughs> I guess worst case scenario, it'll be a story in the next special. But it's like I did a Planned Parenthood um, fundraiser, and a woman had a heart attack right before I went up. In the audience, yeah. Jesus, yeah, yeah. I well, I always I did the. Um, Abortion access, yeah, thing for Liz Winstead. Liz, yeah, my old roommate. Cool, and uh, and it's like it's hard to like talk about, you know. It's like no think- one's excited to have an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want you to have one. <laughs> it's your, I, I, I get it. Like yeah. my, you know, I get it. <laughs> but it's it's a hard yeah. thing. Uh, it's a it's a hard comedy segue. Yeah, I think especially to riff. I mean, like to riff about it can get like sticky. But like yeah. when it comes to jokes about it, I do. I like trying to. F- write jokes about it oh yeah me too i mean it's yeah. a, it's a good it's a good area yeah because it makes people uncomfortable yeah but then the but when you're doing a benefit for it they don't want to laugh at it it's interesting it's, yeah. yeah i did we did alberta rose theater in portland liz and abortion yeah. access force and i will say uh i think i it's near the end of my hbo special girl daddy that we were mm-hmm. mentioning i have a abortion chunk sure. and um I did it. I remember at that event and it didn't go. It just hit different. So it was mm-hmm. funny that they weren't really wanting to necessarily laugh at that. But I don't know. I think, too, the right is so loud about abortion yeah. when really I think many people do support it, believe it, and it is healthcare. I think it's about 70%. They're just so loud that we grew up feeling like shameful about it. It adds so much extra unnecessary negativity, yeah. weirdness, shame, all that. Yeah. And they just. You know, I'm telling you nothing you don't know. And now they go, well, you know, they want abortions up to three months after birth. And uh, I know it's it's so annoying. It's like they want to be able to reach up there, grab the hand, yank it out. Yeah. And it's sort of like, no, I mean, most people. Yeah. I mean, I have a joke in the next special that's like I was pregnant once, but I caught it early and I went and got mifepristone and it's sure everybody's okay with plan B. And then yet. Thank the, goodness the Supreme Court just ruled to protect it. So yeah, you can still take the abortion pill, and, and yeah, not all, but not unanimously. No, um, and it's good to tell jokes that make people uncomfortable. Here's a joke that I did: If you're in QAnon, anyone you don't like is a pedophile. Yeah, everyone in Hollywood is a pedophile. <laughs> Every Democrat is a pedophile. Last month, Donald Trump implied that Ron DeSantis was a pedophile, and I wonder if the real pedophiles are like you know. I remember when being a pedophile meant something. <laughs> you had to earn it. And people are like, oh, 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 oh. It's like, no, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm not pro-pedophile. I'm just mentioning it. But to what you were saying about uh, um, um, mef- mifepristone. mifepristone. Yeah. It's what George Carlin said. I mean, he really had the last word on the subject in 2003, I think that special was, which was... Not every, many times when a woman has her menstrual cycle, it is a fertilized egg. Yeah. And so 
according to this rule, any woman that's had more than one period is a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a random rule put in place for political advantage, much in the same of way course. the Second yeah. Amendment is misinterpreted. Yeah. And the, all these gun activists. But yeah, yeah I don't it's know. All, it's, yeah. It is annoying. Of course, I've, I've, I was trying some new jokes this weekend on it after the, right. After the drug ban was, or the, yeah, whatever. It was, right. Put protected yeah yeah um but for yeah. now but you know like coney barrett and alito like alito and coney barrett are like shiite catholics like they yeah. are like hardcore i don't know what it's bad yeah but it's, it's bad. always been bad i was just reading a book about the blacklist and you know it's this country has always been Unfair. politically it's been yeah and it's always been crazy and people were, you know people were run out of the business for going to a a communist meeting in 1939 yeah. when the communist, you know, and what the, what the, com, what communist was, was really about in 1939 was helping people get jobs during the depression and being against, you know, Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know their, their mistake was when Hitler and Stalin signed the non-aggression pact, they all said, no, there's no problem with the Nazis. They, they've, followed Stalin instead of their morals. That was really where they fucked up. But um, no, I mean, it's, it's always been whether you were, you know, gay or, you know, it's like just replace yeah. it, replace it with drag queen and whatever. It, yeah. It's just like, it's always been that. And it's just something that they bang on for political advantage. Right. It's always been that way. Well, especially because it used to be, I mean, it was a Republican supported abortion back before I'm trying to think of the, oh, Phyllis. Schlafly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, Catholic. I think the Catholic Church supported it <laughs> until in the early, I'm reading this off the internet, in the early Roman Catholic Church, abortion was permitted for male fetuses in the first 40 days of pregnancy and for female fetuses in the first 80 to 90 days. That's because it took them longer to get ready. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say until they were born yeah. and plus 40 years. Right. But it was only until 1588 that they went against it completely. The so, good old days. So for, you know, almost 2000 years, they were like, oh, it's fine under certain circumstances. I feel like most of the Bible was like, um, and can you add that? Uh, since I'm allergic to shellfish, nobody can have it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> As someone once, once much wiser than I once said, a group, a book written by a group of men who didn't know where the sun went at night. That'll have all the answers. <laughs> but uh, so are you? Are you working mostly as a writer now or a comic? What do you, what do you oh, do? Oh man, I'm taking a break. Uh, but in the fall I was writing on uh, season eight of Rick and Morty and touring. I think I did like 26 cities and I wouldn't say that's a busy burn myself out, oh, that, that's... but I pushed it. I felt sure. it kind of just felt I was doing my best, uh, but I am a perfectionist and I am hard on myself. So I kind of felt like I was do could have done better at both of them if I, kept it separated yeah well. yeah sure so yeah. 26 cities doing weekends or like one-nighters um mix a mix mm -hmm. some clubs and some one-nighters yeah a total mix and um sometimes multiple cities if that if it was a one-nighter in yeah. a weekend so i would fly whatever it was to milwaukee on thursday night land in the morning zoom um 
for the day at work, right. do the show on Thursday night, fly early, early, early to get there, Zoom for work, do the show at night. Yeah, that's exhausting. That must be a hard show to write. Yeah. So that was my first and in only season. I went into it um, and it was a good experience. Scott sure. Martyr is the showrunner and he's he's got a good thing going for him. Um, I would just say going into it, like during the interview, I made it very clear that I wasn't a sci-fi person. So they knew that when I came on. Yeah. And ultimately it did make it much more difficult for me. It felt like I was like hired on a Spanish speaking show. Uh-huh. You know, like, I don't know how to speak Spanish. So this is, uh-huh. I can give you See, some. See, I'm a sci-fi person, but I'm not a stoner. Yeah. And I would wonder if that would disqualify me. No, I think you would be great. <laughs> and an asset on the show, especially if you're a sci-fi person. Yeah. And you have, because often even to the point where a lot of the writers were talking about shows or particular movies that they watched, it's right. genuinely not something I've ever really been interested in mm-hmm. or have a depth of knowledge. So again- they knew that when we went into it sure. and my, my episode pitches and things were more relation ba- relationship based. But and you need that as well. Yeah. yeah. So I learned a lot, um, but ultimately it was like, this was good. And you know, oh, great. it'll just be one and done. Are they here. doing a nine? There's season? 10 total. 10 total. I feel like back in the day they were like, we'll take 10 for an exorbitant amount of money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And is Dan still involved on the show? He is on that show. Yeah. yeah. Is he in the room? Not every day, um, but definitely comes in. Mm, yeah. yeah. Like sort of like, Matt or Jim on The Simpsons, I would imagine. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. I don't know how much they're around, but yeah, that's amazing. No, it's an amazing show. It's it, it is one of the few shows that I watch, and I'm like, God damn, I don't know how they do that. Yeah, it's it. You know, even sometimes which is I, great. I yeah, love, even you know. sometimes I felt that way. Yeah, or it was just like this is just out of my realm. Yeah, but it's also one of those things that it it's built. You know, it's just like you didn't. That, I'm sure that attitude. Yes, that show didn't come to them fully formed. It slowly evolved and it's hard to come into a show eight seasons in you know and especially like and of course i'm I'm very yeah (laughs) yeah i'm very meticulous and so of course i watched every episode but right um because you don't want to be the person who gets hired and pitches something that That they've done done yeah but um yeah it was kind of interesting to come into that that late i guess is all right um i thought of something else and then left me something off of what you said did, when you, because you got into, it's interesting. You got into stand-up comedy through debate. Yeah. Well, here's the <laughs> you thing. You might be the only person I know that has that. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, it was speech and debate, but I was the speech part. Like, like it was speech and debate, and there were Lincoln Douglas debaters and extemporaneous debaters, mm-hmm. and then there was the speech team, and I was on the speech team. Right. So I was doing humorous interpretation. I would take a play and play all the characters. Uh huh. So it was like early stand up. It was sort of like a little, yeah. I would guess to describe it as like a ten minute portion of a play that I then made a one person show out of, and I played all the characters and did all the voices, and you would have different focal points for the characters talking to each other. Right. So. Um, and I was often one of the only women. So it gave me a nice little, I don't know how to put it, but a precursor to stand up and what that would be like for me. Yeah. Well, certainly being the only woman was a nice precursor yeah. to stand up. Yeah. And, the, and the competitiveness of it too. Like yeah. it was very competitive and. Yeah. And um, then you, and you started out in Chicago in the, yeah. in the middle, in the early aughts, I guess. It was right when like Kumail was, was leaving and Jared Logan was, were, were leaving. I remember mm-hmm. them like their goodbye parties and, um, and so there was like, there's, there's shifts and exoduses that happen to the coast. And then that kind of. Yeah. Guess, and then they have a different, and then a different 
class comes in. Yeah, you know, exactly. It, it does always, it, it can feel like high school a little, and it still does sometimes. Oh, no, I refer to the people that I came up with in Boston as, well, he was in my class. Yeah. Like I was, like Goldthwait was a year ahead of me. Yeah. You know, it's just. Oh, that's cool that you guys, you know, yeah. have kept in touch this long. I didn't know how far you went back. Oh my God. No, I've known, I've known Bob <laughs> since 84. I guess I should have known that because of your, um, I think you guys did. Yeah, Joyride, yeah. <laughs> Joyride. But as I, well, if you saw it, then you know, like, because we weren't yeah. always friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Sometimes you just look back at a picture of Bobcat and you're like, that's the same person? Yeah, no, it's, he's, he's a very evolved guy. Yeah, he's which a is very lovely. Evolved guy. It's a and, good thing uh, to show. Because he has so many fans from the 80s, they have no idea who they are seeing when they come to see him. That's interesting. You know? Yeah. I'm sure other people will deal with that. I mean, obviously, I, one classic example that comes to mind would be Bob Saget. You know, people yes, not knowing the what they're going to go see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know Nicole Byer deals with that now, just to, like from her nailed it show. She has so many kid fans, like including some of my you know nieces, nephews, or family right. members, and it's like you can't see yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a kids show. Yeah. Have you the, one thing I found that's interesting, and like of these people, like you'll go on the like I was at. Cap City Comedy in Austin. Recently? This is a couple of years ago. Okay. This is before the pandemic. I mean, I was in Austin yesterday. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, but I, I'm I haven't been tower. back to, I was going to say, I haven't been yeah. back to Cap City, but I'm going to go in the fall. I was just yeah. going to ask you. If, yeah. Well, I, I mean. It, there's a change. No, I think it's fine. Because the, um, I think ownership changed or something. Oh, did it? Yeah. Did it was like going to close and now it's open. Anyway, sorry. I digress. Oh, no. It's fine. I was doing Cap City. And somebody from YouTube, now it would be TikTok, right? Was like at the Enormo Dome, <laughs> you know, yeah, doing twenty minutes and then a Q and A, yeah, because they didn't have any material. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and then, and it was just like, yeah, what do they do? Uh, they have a dog that farts in a pool and <laughs> barks at the bubbles. Like I don't know, what, <laughs> I, I don't know what their act is. And the funny thing is, is like as comics who can talk to people for forty five minutes or tell jokes for forty five yeah. minutes to an hour, an if hour, not more. Yeah, yeah not more. Uh, <clears throat> you know, that's something that you know takes time and experience and in intelligence and talent, all these things that you work really hard at. And then we think that the people that sold that enormous arena out will go see it and be like, oh, well, we won't do that again. And the answer is they sure will. They will come back. Like so oh. many comics think like, oh, well, once they see them live, they'll, you know, they don't have the time. It's like, no, they're, no, they love they'll it. come back and they, they love, love it. it. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. is. I know. You know, it just is. I'm in a place in my life where I'm like, great. Yeah. You know, I'm, of course. I do what I do. Yes. And I'm very happy with what I do. Yeah. And um, I, re I hope I keep making money. And Yeah. But. Uh, um, I think that comes with time too, obviously. Even sometimes when I used to, when I was younger, I would be, I was definitely more subtle and more deadpan. And if I followed someone who was really big, 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 I was always so worried. Like, oh no. Mm -hmm. And what you obviously learn over time is like, no matter what, you just do you and. That's sure. That. You don't just yeah. because someone was so big, loud, and brash and funny doesn't mean you have to go. Hey, what's up, everybody? No, normally, it's the reverse. We'll yeah. do it. Yeah. And I, I know people that can't. It, uh, years ago, uh, I was listening to T Bone Burnett being interviewed on Fresh Air, oh. and it was in the early '90s. I was walking around Tempe, Arizona, because I was doing the improv, mm -hmm. and. Uh, a club so big, as Drake Sather said, 
You can't see the back of the club because of the curvature of the earth. (laughs) (laughs) But I was walking around and and she was interviewing T-Bone Burnett, who had just, at the time, he had a solo album out. He had produced Elvis Costello's solo, uh, Elvis Costello's album, King of America. And uh, his wife, Sam, I believe Sam Phillips was his wife at the time. She had a very popular album called Martinis and Bikinis. And he goes like, you know, you produce this album that's selling really well. Your wife's album uh, is doing huge business. And then your album, does that give you pause that you get, you know, aggravated? It was a good question. And he said, I try not to live competitively, (laughs) which I thought was such a great way of putting it. Like, yeah, I'm not here to win. Yeah. And how those things affect people. Years later, I'm at a party and he's at the party. And I tell him that. I so I go, you know, you said that and it never left me. Like I it really, and he, and he literally went, did I say that? Ah. Yeah, I guess that's one of those things you just say without thinking. It just goes out there and people pick up on it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a dick at all. He was like, yeah, uh, he yeah. was like, oh, did I say that? Did I that? Okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's You're like, welcome. Oh, Yeah. It's like the old joke about like when you, the guy goes up to the top of the mountain and, uh, you know, uh, you know, he s- strives and suffers and he finally gets to the top of the mountain in Himalaya and sees the great master and says, what is the meaning of life? And he goes, enjoy every moment. He goes, that's it. Enjoy every moment. He goes, it's not enjoy every moment. <laughs> so- You go to dinner with a bunch of people and they won't laugh at another story, another person's story because they got to win. I know. I'm like, I'm sure I've, I'm sure I've been around something like that, but I'm like, I can't, nobody's coming to mind, but wow. Yeah. I'm, I just went to Boon Tower and I saw three acts that just killed me. Uh, Mikey Winfield. Yes. He destroys. I'd never seen him before. Yeah. He's a killer. He's amazing. Where does he work out? Sacramento. At least that's when I, he dropped in on some of my shows a couple years back and I thought he was living in that area. And then uh, he was great. Blair Sochi always makes me laugh. Yeah. And uh, Natalie. Palamides. Palamides. Yeah. Yeah. That was. She's incredible. Yeah. That was. Did she do anything with the fish? Sure did. Yeah. I, I saw that in the belly room and I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in here. I, after her set, I, I went to Target across the street to get her some baby wipes because she said that she was going to go and I just didn't want a, a young woman going to target with fish on her face. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I just talk on stage. Uh, let me go get you some wipes. <laughs> I know yeah. sometimes after a show, I'm like uh, that particular one. I was like, I love you so much. And she goes to give me a hug. I was like, let's not. Let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, let's not hug that. Yeah, and, 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 um, let's wait until you don't have fish on you and then I'll give you the biggest hug in the world. <laughs> and Andrea Jin is really funny. She just moved oh, down here. Oh, okay. Yeah. I feel like I've definitely done a show with her. Yeah. She's very funny. Yeah. She has a really, really laconic. Yes. She says she has, she has resting, resting face. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. She was great. And, yes. Uh, I definitely did a show with her at Bar Lubitsch. Yeah. And it's just, and it was, it, it was, it's great to see, like, to see new yeah. people that are really, that, but like all of those people, unlike whoever from TikTok selling out the Houston Astrodome, like they're really invested in what they're doing on stage and they're yeah. really comics. And, they're, you know, it was really, uh, 
uh, it was really uh, encouraging. Now, when you do, when you get hired to write on Rick and Morty, um, do you get, you know, do your managers or agents go like, when are you going to write the best selling show? When are you going to get that going? Yeah, I feel like there's definitely been some of those uh, calls. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, with them as in the sense, sure. like, what are we doing next? Yeah. I think they kind of like leave me alone a lot. I don't talk to them a lot. I don't have the, yeah, well, I don't have a giant plan. Like I don't have a, I don't, you know, and it's always like, you know, it'd be great. You should come up with something like Seinfeld or ER. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> or maybe I could write Jaws. Jaws would be good. <laughs> it's like, you know, back in the day, your mom was like, you should be on SNL. It's like, yeah. okay. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I'll thank tell you. Them. I'll tell them. Yeah. yeah. Right. But I, I, I definitely, um, I I had uh, one show um, that I sold to FX, and it was around the time, you know, everybody's always buying everybody. And I don't know when that was, a couple of years right. back. Um, that just didn't end up going. But right. Um, but you, did you make the pilot or did you just write the script? I just wrote the script. Mm-hmm. I sold them the idea and wrote the script. We no. love it. We love it. We love it. No, not right now. Not right now. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It makes you always kind of look back and go, I should have gone with the other network that offered to make it. I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously there's nothing you can do. It's like regretting something you've done in life. It's like, okay, well it's done. Yeah, it's done. Yeah. No, I think the best thing I ever wrote, one of the best things I ever wrote, I foolishly took to Comedy Central. Dang. Sometimes things can be revived in a different way or resuscitated. I don't know. I've trained myself to also kind of like not get excited anymore about anything, which is sad and also good. Smart. (laughs) No, it's really smart because it's just like, I always say it's like a Frisbee out the window. Yeah. Yeah, it might come back. Yeah. It might come back. Probably won't. Yeah. But just get another Frisbee. Yeah. And I have to just also remember, I have to go, I'm in an idea factory, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So something else will come along do you believe in ghosts <laughs> yeah i mean i mean if, is that a real question because i actually just avoid it I, I like um i was just in nevada city california uh-huh. and have you ever been there no it's it's a cool place and i did the nevada theater in the they were doing like their film fest it's beautiful mm-hmm. it's actually mark twain has been on that stage it's the oh, wow. oldest theater i think in our country wow um working theater <clears throat> So anywho, um, my friend Aaron came to surprise me because it was my birthday weekend and my other friend Katie. And Aaron does believe in ghosts and has a friend who is a medium and and very much in touch with those things. And so I stayed in the the hotel there called the National Exchange, I think. And again, they just redid that, but it's all very old. Mm -hmm. So wherever Aaron and I would go, she would ask someone there or say something to me like, Ooh, I can feel the ghosts. Or how many ghosts are in here? What are the ghosts? (laughs) I'm so good at just full denial and avoidance. I acted like she wasn't saying any of that. She would say those things and I'd be like, so do you want to go um, grab something to eat now? Like I would just, not, um, I don't, if it's, if I don't acknowledge it, it's not happening. Even in my, <laughs> even in my room, there was a painting of a woman like underwater, like, oh gosh. And she goes, oh, oh, oh. That, she goes, oh, that's creepy as hell. I'm like in my head, so avoiding an argument or anything. Not like we fight at all. Right. But I was like, in my head, I'm going, I have to sleep here later. But Shut the fuck up. Was it the famous, uh, what is it, Ophelia or whatever the thing um, is? You know what? Floating in the water? Again. Under the water. Under the water. And I'm telling you, I saw it once and never looked at it again. Like, I don't I don't need to look into it. I was like, I'm. it's kind of like head down. As long as I'm not seeing them, I they're not here. 
So that is how I treated the whole weekend. And she's like, Gus, where are they? I bet, Ooh, I can feel something. And I'm just like, nope, nope, nope. Wow. Blinders. I think that they're, I think, um, I, I mean, I have no idea. I have no idea. I, you want them to be there. You want, I want there yeah. to be ghosts because it's fun. I, I, they are, you know, I do believe in them as the answer because of all my friends, very vivid experiences with them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mother, uh, my mother super believes in them. My friends like read a book on how to like help them leave a place sure. and then did that. Sage them out. And- it was like helping them understand that what year it was. <laughs> by by yeah. showing them. A, I leave out the fall preview is, yeah. TV guide. <laughs> <laughs> you trick them and leave yeah. out an old one. Where is, <laughs> when is MASH on? That's been canceled. What year is it? <laughs> uh, Whatever you- happened to Hawkeye? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You died of boredom from watching the show, actually. Um, no, yeah, it was pretty interesting. They basically were working in Chicago in a huge, in an old warehouse, but that was their office. Uh-huh. And um, so several different types of small businesses were in there and everyone was afraid of this particular bathroom. They would always hear something. Even the, even when they talked to the cleaning staff, they, were, they said, oh no, yeah, that bathroom is like we hear stuff too. And so finally, working late at night, everyone was kind of scared and didn't want to go in there. So my friend's husband read a book on how to deal with it, went in there and had like a very, very intense experience with the guy who was in there looking for his son. And if you look up the story, it did happen there in that building. And he basically had to say, you know, what year it was and please leave. Your work here is done. There's nothing you can do anymore. And your son's gone and explain all of it to him. And then they and they left. But it was yeah. like wailing. They could hear wailing. Sure. I So again, I want it to be true. I yeah. don't know if it's true or not, but I hope it is. Yeah. Yeah, I hope it is. I was only thinking about it because I get this magazine called The Forty and Times, and they were just talking about like a haunted. It's just a magazine of strange phenomena. I was gonna say, and what is that mean Fortian. Uh, it was again Charles I don't know? Fort. Is okay, guy, okay. Charles Fort. It was a. It's basically the the um, Fox Mulder magazine. You okay. know, it's like any weird thing. And I love this idea. And I I just saw the the header. And uh, yeah, it's here. Here are the articles this month that are great. Uh, the Witch Farm: How a Dream Home in the Welsh Countryside Became One Family's Haunted Nightmare. I want to read that. Yeah. Here's a great one: Spooking the Spooks. Top secret ghosts on a military base. Whoa. Double use of spooks. <laughs> Homonyms. <laughs> Love that. Unidentified fascist objects. The pseudo history of Nazi flying saucers. All mm, great stuff. All solid articles. Yeah. Are Buddhism and Western science compatible? It's all great stuff. There is that show, um, Shining Veil. Speaking of Sharon Horgan earlier. Right. Right. I, I um I can't remember exactly where it is. Courtney Cox is the lead, but the right, yeah, yeah, moves into a haunted yeah, house. Right, and there's also and there's also that podcast Night Vale. Okay, I haven't. Heard yeah, that. I think Janet's on that. It's okay. like a spooky. I have a hard time with fiction podcasts. I have a hard time with narrative podcasts. Yeah, we have to follow along. Yeah, I don't think I listen to any. Yeah, I'm, I'm on one. <laughs> which one? Valley Heat. I've never heard it. 
But Patton and Blaine and Brian and all those guys yeah. just swear by it. It's very funny. And Christian Duque is and always was funny. He did stand up for yeah. a while. Um, but yes, I play the cool guy's girlfriend. And Valley, tell tell us about Valley Heat because I I yeah Valley speak. I mean, we were just speaking about narrative right. podcasts, and it's basically the, um, Christian Duque has writes it voices mm-hmm. it and then has all of us come in as these characters but he's there's basically he's trying to figure out it's like a drug bust in the valley and it's a guy who lives there who's just trying to figure it all out on his own and he thinks it's the pool guy who's planting or you know selling drugs out of uh the trash can and it's set in the valley in what year is it contemporary I think it's, yeah it's contemporary uh. yeah <laughs> yeah you know it's all the mundane things about living in a, in a neighborhood where like you know whose cars parked there for this right, amount right, of time right. and oh, love, he yeah. does all the commercials too which is really funny <laughs> yeah i yeah i have to get that i basically listen to non-fiction stuff yeah. from i need to listen to more podcasts century. honestly i think they would help me and just in general like mental health and enjoyment you know but i just don't listen to any well, I used to listen to a lot of news podcasts, and I really checked out. Okay, because it just makes me like I go on Twitter and I'm, I'm I'm angry. Yeah, and there's no reason for it. I'm trying to get my mom to stop watching the news. Uh, like even when I was just met my family in Florida for a little bit, and you know, I I don't want to. Well, at least they're in Florida, which is a very <laughs> rational state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, well, they're in Ohio, but we all met up in a place called Rosemary Beach. Uh-huh. I've never been. It was really pretty. But are your family Trumpers? No. Okay. No, not at all. What's, um, that, what's that like? <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> my mom's open to change and new information. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll have to take your word for it. I guess, you'll, I guess if you live long enough, you'll see anything. <laughs> so we would just, you know, come home from the beach in between dinner and what we were going to do, and she'd put on the news, and I would turn it right off, you know, without saying anything, because she would just kind of turn it off and then go get ready. And I'm like, or I'm sorry, turn it on. And then I yeah. would turn it off. And I think she knows what I'm doing because I've done it before. I don't want to keep her from information. It's just a, it's so repetitive. I know that's like the news cycle for a reason, but mm-hmm. I'm sort of just like, it's bad for you, I think. Because they were covering, they were covering the indictment at the time right. of Trump. And it's sort of like, she needs to hear it. And I'm like, it's one sentence. Yeah. But you'll listen to the same sentence for an hour, if not three hours a day. Or six. Or six. Yeah. No, the news used to be... Yeah, it's bad. The news used to be a half hour at six o'clock. Yeah. And now it's 24 hours and they have to fill 24 hours. Yeah. And so you get... One of the one of the things that came out of that was, well, there's two sides to every story. And here's the pro roller coaster accident viewpoint. No, there is no pro yeah. roller coaster accident. <laughs> you know, it's just a bad thing happened. Yeah. You know, and yeah, no, it's very, it's addictive. As, yeah, and I think that is her, her thing, addiction. Yeah. As my friend says, uh, you, you don't listen to the news. You listen to the news business. And it's all about creating mm-hmm. conflict and... Um, you know, uh, the uh, John Stewart pointed it out with the indictments. They pumped them up to this huge thing, and then they came out, and then they did a whole new cycle about how they were disappointed in them yeah. because they weren't as exciting as they said they were going to be when they didn't know what they were going to be to begin with. Yeah, you know, so it's it's all a show. Yep. It's all a show. And my, I I was so wrapped up in the Trump of it all. Uh, that I'm just never going to go that deep into it again. Yeah. I it takes a toll. I mean, it also, like I did a couple of days uh, on a week at, at I Love You America with Sarah Silverman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, um, 
the th- you know, I think I was doing some research for uh, a public servant uh, monologue about the idea of that. And mm-hmm. it's called a public servant. And yet right. it's a lifetime job for a lot of them. Or, sure. a, a, you know, what am I trying to say? A, a lifetime career. Yeah. A career politician is the right. word I'm looking for. And much less of a public servant. Right. Um, because to me, it would be great if if it was volunteer work. Yeah. Uh, because that would mean that they actually cared and were representing the people back right. home in the community they worked in. So, and that's kind of year round, you know, so Mm -hmm. a a really enlightening um, interview was, I I think it was Dick Durbin in Illinois. And he was basically just saying, I'm, he was leaving because he was retiring. He was an older man. And he said how he just kind of was so happy to be done so he could stop asking his friends for money. Right. And looking back at, his, back at his career, does he regret anything? And and he said, I truly did the best I could. There were times where I couldn't possibly, I was handed 100 page things I'm about to vote on and I couldn't possibly read it. So he said, I'm sure I made mistakes because I didn't have time to read it all. Then you rely on those people who are. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I, not stumping, but what am I trying to say? There was a Lobbying. Word. Thank you. Lobbying. And it's like, you can choose yeah. to trust them and that's a mistake or it yeah. is not a mistake. So he, it, it's kind of a mess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we know it's a mess, but to hear from him was interesting because it was an older guy doing his best to stay afloat and right. saying, I may have made mistakes because I couldn't read it all in time. Yeah. They always get on when they, when it's not until they're done that they'll tell you the truth. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I'm fat. Well, that just made me think of another area of life I'm fascinated in, but what? Porn. I, I I feel like I have so many questions for some. Dick Durbin went into porn. <laughs> <laughs> his name's Dick Durbin. Uh, yeah, for God's his sake. his motto is Dick Durbin before he dicks you. <laughs> yeah. That was the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, just like how honest can you be when you're still trying to work? And I wanted to know. I just have uh-huh. so many curiosities about that, where it's like, you know, oh, about, treatment about porn stars. Yeah. Yeah. And, what, I, and I'm sure some the, of that information is actually out there and I just haven't found it or sought it. But right. just, it was just, it's kind of interesting to me. Like, how, how truthful can you be if you want to work again? And how can you protect yourself if, if you want to work again? Yeah. And if you don't, I mean, it is, I think it's, I knew one older pornographic actress. She was, uh, this, I used to see this guy at our, grocery store and then there's this guy with a crew cut he looked kind of like uh like old like an old military guy like it was kind of chubby but he had a crew cut and then he had this his wife they were both you know and they were probably late 40s early 50s and his blonde wife and i was like how do i know oh yeah 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 (laughs) uh and then and then i found out that he was and we ended up Speaking, we ended up talking at one point, and I got his name, and his name was his name was Ernest Green, and he was a producer. Okay, and then he was, and then we ended up having a long conversation. It was really funny because he was the, and Nina Hartley was his wife, uh, um, or girlfriend. I don't know what they, I don't know what it was, because uh, I ended up being on a podcast with her. Uh, but he was also the editor of Leg Show magazine, which was a magazine, and I said, I. I who still buys magazines? Cause this was well into the internet. And he goes, mm-hmm. some people, you know, we're, I love that. He goes, we're a cheap date. <laughs> Nina Harley is very, was very like pro the business. I think if it serves you and you're protected, then yeah. 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 And things. I know there are some people that are just like, it was yeah. their nightmare. Of course. 
tell me where I tell me how I'm wrong on this because I've told this story on stage and it just dies. Okay, it just dies. I was at a dinner and with a bunch of people, and they said, "What um, your oldest daughter do?" I go, "She goes to Berkeley. She's uh, in the sciences, science department." Um, it's weird. We wanted her to be a stripper, but she's in the sciences. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. And then somebody goes, but you know what? If she wanted to be a stripper, that'd be okay. Yeah. And I went, no. No. Not with me. <laughs> it wouldn't be okay at all. <laughs> I'd <laughs> rather went, her not. Yeah. And I'm sorry. And just not that that never gets alive. Like, I'm sorry. I want strippers to have insurance and unemployment and all the protections that they want if they choose to do that. Yeah. I do not want my daughter doing that. Sorry. I know. I mean, I can understand. I mean, yeah, I think it makes sense. I'm like, I'm trying to think of a way to fix it. If she were a cam girl, that's fine. Well, the first thing I was going to say, the first thing I wanted to say to this person was, okay, person without children. Yeah. Do they not have kids? (laughs) I don't think so. I didn't, I didn't pursue it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because in that area is of course the trope of, of daddy issues, right? Like strippers have daddy issues and all these things. And of course, sometimes that's true. And, um, and because male comics controlled the narrative for so long, like they dominated the stand-up scene for so sure. long, you hear less of, you know, guys with mommy issues because women weren't on stage talking about right. them. But it is interesting too, because the opposite of it, I suppose, is stuff I've witnessed in my life or my family, which which I describe it as, you know, some of the husbands that we've brought into our family. It's like, I simplify it by saying, mommy hurt me or I hate mom. Mommy hurt me, so I hate mommies. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to date someone their age because that's mommy who hurt them. So they okay. date much younger because that's someone they can either control or control, doesn't challenge yeah. them. Or yeah, and a, not always the case. Again, yeah. just like not all servers have daddy issues, but sure. it is interesting to play in those realms of our of our psyche. Like, yeah. <clears throat> not, I'm, I'm also not talking about a, a grown man dating a child. I'm talking no, about, you're talking about dating you're younger. You know, yeah. just in the sense that it's yeah. like it does draw the question and in the same for me like i've had moments i've dated older i've dated much much mm-hmm. younger too and it's just an interesting dip into your psyche of why you choose who you choose that was actually sort of in the area of the show that i that i wrote what was basically like how your childhood affects who you choose as a romantic partner oh sure and how that plays out and obviously yeah. those things are connected yeah. but i don't know the the stripper thing is sometimes also just for money that whole area is fascinating fascinating to me because I have a friend who has stripped but it was purely for money and she went to Orange County because she felt people would be more behaved and have more money and not she'd be in less danger so there's just so many did that work out she did it so briefly and yeah Uh I would make an influx of cash and then I also know people who need an influx of cash and trim weed you know like go up go travel far away to trim weed what's trim weed um harvest marijuana yeah Yeah. (laughs) I'm Joe Friday yeah (laughs) harvest weed yeah. yeah, no, and I... And not to mention, like, now we have the cam girls and things yeah, like that, only, where you don't have to be touched or whatever. Like yeah, yeah, I know. It's all fascinating to me, really. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing about the uh, onslaught of the internet is it 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 is a it's a wrecking ball through business models yes you know the mu- the film industry the television industry the music industry and the adult film industry it's just a wrecking right. ball like you were saying a magazine like yeah. i think there's that porn doc now on on netflix but it was like back in the day to steal porn it was coming across a random magazine in the woods you yeah know, i do it you know i do a 20 minute bit on that oh you do okay <laughs> yeah, like, i love it just like how did all that porn get into the woods <laughs> 
because <laughs> I certainly had that experience. Like, uh, I think it grows in the no. Like when I was a kid, it was a big deal. You had to find it. Now my I have teenage daughters. They all have phones. I'm sure they've seen yeah. everything there is to see. Yeah, which is depressing. I know. Um, There's yeah. access to everything. It feels so. It feels untenable. But anyway, that's yeah. just. I haven't explored it enough or delved in enough, but it's definitely something that's been fascinating me lately. No, it's a great. It's a very interesting. It's a very interesting idea, and also. The fact that what you were saying is like you never get the you never get because we were comparing it to Dick Durbin. Yeah. <laughs> you never get the truth about something until you have nothing to lose. Yeah. You know, so you're not invested in it anymore. Yeah. And you leave. And you feel free to, for lack of a better term, I guess, sometimes talk some shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, you it's uh I I, I everybody, yeah, they say everybody comes down with a Case of the truths when they have nothing, yeah. When they have nothing left to lose, I think too. I don't want to be the person like you know the joke you were telling how you lose the crowd on the stripper thing, and it's like I'm the last person to say like, well, everybody's too you know worried about hurting everybody's uh, feelings when there's sex workers in the yeah. world, and it's like I'm sure there's a, a an aspect of that, right? Them saying like, hey, well, there's, there's strippers who are good people. It's like. Yeah, I think the crux of the joke is just like I just don't. I yeah. mean, ultimately, of course, no. Yeah, I don't want my no daughter, daughter wants to be. Yeah, you don't I don't want to want see your daughter take her clothes off. Uh, yeah, I also don't want my daughter to be a smoke jumper. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want her to be on a SWAT team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. There's a, there's a lot of there's things I don't want things. my daughter to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and and it's just like uh, and and if. If she was, I'd support her, but yes. I wouldn't be happy about it. Yeah. And I you think know. the thing that I'm going to try to figure out just as I <laughs> educate myself on it is the power aspect of it. Because there is so much, well, I'm taking my power back or or that is how I feel empowered. And how empowered can you be when so much of our culture is, I don't know, it's it's tough for yeah, me. Yeah. And that's, the, I, don't, I, I believe that's a canard because it's just like, I'm taking my power back. Really? Yeah, it's tough for me, me to wrap about, my mind around it. Tell me about the night you want to keep your clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> I just Tell me tell me tell me what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sort of like I, it is hard to wrap my mind around it's something I'm fascinated by, the yeah. power of it. Well, Even I, just my worth coming from growing up being taught like like I really badly wanted boobs. Why did I want boobs? Because boys would be oh, cuz I was a gymnast. Sorry, I should have said right. that. Gymnast for so long no boobs. And I wanted them bad. And I felt Really? Yeah, I was like cuz that's my worth. That's what I was taught was my worth. Not by my mom, not by whatever. Just growing up here and being a woman. Right. Yeah. A, a man's attractive attraction to me would make me feel good and be right. worth something. So I that's the part where I struggle with the power coming into it. Cause it's like, um, and even just like taking it further to like certain play within actual sex and intimacy. Like I sometimes will hear at post me too material right where i'll hear some women on stage saying stuff like but i also just want a guy to choke me like like you know what i'm saying like don't go too far with the me too movement because i still want to get you know People really say that yeah yeah and to me i'm like damn that's not helping no i find it i, I and i'm not the person to ask because i'm way out of the main i think i'm way out of the mainstream of what's going on now and uh i don't like it <laughs> when uh, comedians uh, are too overtly sexual, like they're they dress up sort of Vegasy, or like it's like, and it's their right to be glamorous or whatever they view as glamorous. It just rubs me the wrong way. It's like this isn't what you should be doing. 
I hear that. You know, it's like you're a comedian and, and I, I don't think that there's a delineation between men and women comedians as who's funnier. I really, yeah. my favorite, every comedian with the exception of Mike, the funniest comedians I saw in Moon Tower were women. Yeah. Um, uh, but that it just seems that you're playing an antiquated role and uh it belittles you uh, that's the thing like- and i say that as a as a a 58 year old guy who's never been on a dating app yeah. That has three daughters. Yeah. You know, so I'm I'm not I I mean the, like I'm not the audience for these people either. Right. Yeah, yeah and I, I also think too, like when it comes to that, like those are things I'm just one thing that comes to my mind is like being on the road. Sometimes I'll go, I wish I were a dude comic because I could then go explore um the city maybe that day. Um not be having as much anxiety about getting home and getting ready, which by the way, I show up to a lot of my shows, like you're pretty disheveled and wearing very comfortable clothing, but I still have that thing in me. That's like, well, I better get ready, put a little makeup on and make sure I seem presentable. Yeah. So, so many times I wish I had a buzz cut and no makeup or even even doing a late night show, like, and you at midnight, you're ready to go. I'm doing my makeup and trying to write jokes as they put it on my face. That's true. So it's like those aspects of it bother me. And I, and then it's like, Oh, well then don't wear makeup. And it's like, and field of questions about my mental illness. <laughs> so she's I, not wearing makeup. Yeah, yeah, she looks unwell or like a little right. off or whatever it is. Yeah, and no, course, I guess I get that. Well, it's the old, it's the old Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers. Like yeah. Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but she did it backwards in high heels. Yeah, and then <laughs> to, to to my point earlier, which I'm like I said, my mind's reeling because I have all these topics. I'm I'm getting like so curious about lately. Yeah. But it's like I love you. You're beautiful without makeup. It's like then why are you jerking off to a girl that has so much makeup on, fake ass, fake tits, fake lips, and looks nothing like me? And of course, right. you're allowed to be attracted to other people. It's just sort of like, but why is like that's the hard that's hard hard yeah. for me to reckon in my head. Yeah. I will also say, and again, I'm not the guy. (laughs) I don't like any of those things that you just described. Like I can see fake. I can always see when it's fake. Yeah. And I just like, well, it's not real. Yeah. It's not real. And I've, and I find the, I find, (laughs) I find butts now comical. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Sometimes I'm walking around. I'm like, how did that happen? I know. I'm just like, what is happening right now? Everybody looks like a Bratz doll. Yeah. But I'm just like, I, 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 yeah. And, and I don't get, I don't get it at all. And, and and yeah, everybody looks like Janice from the Muppet show. Yes. And, and yes, the Janet Muppet, you know, and then, Certain practices that have that have become de rigueur that I'm just like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that ever. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Because like- I know about cholera. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, um, and then I do, of course, I've- I don't like anybody that much. <laughs> <laughs> there is the thing too, of course, when we come out as as a comic on stage. I do consider what I'm wearing, you know, I, I don't know of the five, sh- five shows, three nights I just did in punchline in Sacramento. It's like, I wore very comfortable clothes. One night I wore a deep V neck where I had more cleavage than I would ever normally show. And I just, it was on my mind. 
Oh, was it? You know yeah. what I mean? It was on my mind. It made it distracted me a little. And I thought, mm-hmm. for sure, it doesn't make me comfortable to be sexy. It didn't ruin my performance or whatever, but it's just something to consider. Yeah, it's something to consider. And, you know, I feel like as a comedian, I want to dress. Approachable? But I want to dress up. I'm, I've never gone on stage in street clothes. Okay. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I've taken off my jeans and my sweater and put on a different pair of jeans <laughs> and a different, something just as similar as a sweater. But I have show clothes yeah. and street clothes. Like, I've never gone on stage in shorts, never gone on stage in a hoodie, never gone on stage in sweatpants. Yeah. Like, I just have like, no, it's a show. Yeah, I see they what paid. you mean. It's yeah. a show. They paid to get in. I know. Sometimes that's a little endemic of LA that people are like, well, what do you guys want to talk about? And I'm like, that's your job. Yeah, that's Please your job. Please present. Yeah. Please present these people a show. In the heyday of the alt comics with the notebooks on stage, it was, that came from a show that we did where you couldn't do, you had to do new material. Yeah. So you had, you wrote it that day because everybody procrastinated. So yeah. you would go on stage with a notebook because yeah. you just wrote it. It was not. It's hacky to memorize your act. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that's not what it is. Yeah. It's very fine to memorize your act. It's, it's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And then of course, if we, of course, some people are using LA as workout rooms, which I get. And then you yeah. glance down and sure. yeah, have a set list or whatever. But Ultimately, whatever. I didn't. We were kind of going. I don't even know where we were going with it, but it's just the idea of like the, the sex being brought into it as. Yeah. But but when I first started, I was very I was hell bent on not being a stereotype, so I didn't want to. You know, I had all these rules for myself, including don't take a notebook on stage, don't take comics, and don't talk about sex. Because uh-huh. I was like, I don't want those this are, to I mean, be. Those are good rules. <laughs> yeah, I, I broke them all. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. I broke them all. But yeah. I also eventually got to the point where I I said, F- screw it. I'm going to talk about sex and it will be my smart, clever way. And it was a way, f- it wasn't exploitative or um, exhibitionist, you know? Comedy now is, is a lot more like music in the sense that there are yeah. types. Mm-hmm. Like before they would just put comics, four comics on a show. But now you have like the bro comics yeah. and the alt comics Definitely. and the this comics and the that comics. And they really do, they're really separated. Yeah. You know? It's true. Um, and they don't, they don't mingle. But I had to master, I had, I had to perfect both skills coming up because I to work the clubs and then work alt rooms around town in Chicago. So it was like, you yeah. needed to be able to straddle them both, be able to survive in a club. Yeah. I And I did as well. I mean, I was one of the few comics in the alt scene here that had a thriving mainstream club career. Yeah. And I was one of the few that went back and forth. Yeah. Um, and a lot, you know, a lot of that club career, I attribute to Kevin Rooney, um, the late great and, and getting me into it. And also like telling me, telling me what I needed to know to like, to, to do what I was able to do what I did in alt rooms in mainstream rooms because of advice that Kevin had given me about like, it is a show. Yeah. They did, they did pay to get in here. And most importantly, they want to like you. Yeah. But they, but you have to like them and they have to sense that. Right. Or they won't like you. And cause I had such a chip on my shoulder I mean, I think um, that's, yeah, I guess that's... That by being more open and warm to the crowd, I was able to do a lot of stuff that 
I developed in alt rooms. That's right. At the Dallas Improv. Okay. Because I mean, I the think delivery I ha- system was that's smart, sophisticated enough. I have that sometimes just like going from early, stuck in my mentality from early days of headlining when it felt like I was going to battle. Like I felt like I had to prove myself and these people were like, oh yeah. gosh, she's funny. So I constantly have to remind myself and shift it in my head before I go on stage where I say they're here to see you. They're here to have fun. Yeah. Same with auditions. Yeah, they want you. They want you to be the person. Yeah. Because then they're done. Yeah. And they can relax. Yeah. You know, I, I know that from auditioning people. Right. Like, please let this person be it. Yes. Yeah. And they're not so, out to get And easier you. said than done because sometimes, just like you, and I have seen it too, you see someone who you think is very, very funny come in and you go, how did they get that from this script? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and they're still talented and they're still very funny, but... Yeah. Human brains are a filter for whatever yeah. that is. Well, th- yeah, that and also comedians. Stand-up comedy and acting are diametrically opposed. They can be, yeah. Because one is about talking and one is about listening. Yeah. And a lot of comics. That's a good point. And I've been on TV shows f- acting with a camera on, looking at a scene partner who was completely waiting for their cue. To deliver their line the way they rehearsed it. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Instead of uh, receiving the scene. and yeah. instead of being in the scene. listening and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's alarming, uh, alarming. Yeah, I bet. Um, so. I remember being in acting school and having like, I don't know if you ever came in contact with this type of either acting school or a class or something. They couldn't make eye contact in the scenes that we were doing, and they would be staring. They were allowed looked, to make eye contact. They ju- this particular person couldn't do. It. Oh sure, but oh they yeah, were yeah, studying yeah, yeah. Theater. The person I was talking about did. Yeah, so couldn't do it. You know, we're making eye contact right now, and we're having yeah. a, fi- a fine time doing that. Yeah, they'd be up here. They would be like this, like the whole scene, and it's so weird for you. Yes, and it it's was awful. so weird for me. It's the loneliest you're just feeling like, on earth. <laughs> and you're also like, what are they looking at? Yeah. Yeah, and they're just waiting. And I think they've chosen a place on your head. Yeah, and they're waiting for you to stop talking so they can deliver their line. Yeah, no, it's and, and I wish I wish I'd learned what I had learned thirty years earlier. Of course, because I would have been much better served. Yeah, but and in the same, I was just thinking of this earlier too, though. Um, but we also, as a comic, you do a good comic. You do become a good actor in the sense that you need to make it new each time mm-hmm. i really by show five at a club i'm really actually struggling with aut- authenticity because even though it's technically a different crowd it's still the fifth show in the same place sure and i i start going off the rails i can't do the set i just did all those nights before or the second show yes Any second show yes and i go have Is i that- said this i feel disingenuous i just <laughs> i was in i was just at helium in portland I had a great time good the club was great people yeah. were great but I was, we did the Saturday show, first show was just like, that's the show, put it in the amber. That's the perfect show. It was yeah. just like, everybody yeah. killed. Yes. Everybody did great. Crowd was on fire. It was just, that's, we're done. And then I just said, waiting for the second show. I'm like, wouldn't it be great if we were done? Yes. That's how I felt <laughs> just this Saturday wouldn't night. Wouldn't it be great if we were done? In Sacramento. And then you have to go on and you just have to pick a couple of people out of the crowd and watch them and make them laugh and, yeah. and do and work it again. They're true tales from the 
Can your heart stand the shocking facts? It's the 90s. And you're in your car. And let's say it's night. And you're on a highway somewhere. Your car has one of those fancy CD players in it that everybody has these days. No more cassettes for you. But you want to hear something a little more engaging than music. So you turn on the radio and flip over to the AM dial where you hear an incredibly distinctive synth intro. For the record, that is Giorgio Moroder's theme to the film Midnight Express. But it was also used as the theme for a radio show that defined an era. It all started in 1978. Art Bell, a former rock DJ, decided to make the move into talk radio. So he started a late-night call-in show based out of Las Vegas, Nevada, called West Coast AM. And West Coast AM went on for quite a while with standard topics, politics, whatever. The show did well. Art Bell was an interesting guy. He was born in 1945. He was the quintessential boomer. He was the son of two Marines... He enlisted in the Air Force, but wary of getting killed in Vietnam, trained as a medic. He still saw his share of wartime horrors. While Art was stationed in Amarillo, Texas, he started a pirate radio station that played music for the soldiers on the base. After leaving the military, Bell ended up getting several DJ gigs at small stations in the U.S. Eventually, he moved to Okinawa. And while there, he broke a world record for staying on the air and broadcasting continuously, without sleep, for five consecutive days and nights. He later claimed that such violent sleep deprivation resulted in strange sensations. He said that when he did simple tasks like walking to the refrigerator during a break, quote, it felt as if floating around in a different world. Things seemed unreal. Art, I could have told you that myself. He later commented that this was something that he would never do again. Yep, once is plenty. In 1988, West Coast AM moved out of its home in Las Vegas, where it was stationed at the Plaza Hotel, changed its name to Coast to Coast AM, and began broadcasting from a studio built in Art's home in nearby Pahrump, Nevada. Bell began moving coast-to-coast away from day-to-day politics and more into things that held his interest like gun control and conspiracy theories in the Area 51 Bigfoot range. This was 1989, and I don't need to remind you, Art's form of radio, conspiracy theories, and things in that ilk had yet to descend into the lowest common denominator white rage pig shit of Alec Jones and his troglodyte wannabes. Bell, while he did believe a lot in the things that he talked about, always pointed out that he didn't believe everything, and he considered his show 100% entertainment. He treated all of his callers, no matter how wacky, with open-mindedness and respect. The tone of Coast to Coast AM was of curiosity and wonder, not rage. And that was the beauty of the show. 
Bell took a very yes-and approach to his guests and his callers. Two specific examples stick in my mind. One night I was listening, I was a big fan, and it was open phones night, which meant calls from everywhere, no screeners. So a guy gives Art a call. Art says hello, and the guy says, Good evening, Art. I am a time traveler from what you would call the Andromeda system. I have been altered to look human. I currently live in Columbia, South Carolina, where I work at a paint warehouse. Art's reply? Go ahead, sir. Another one, I was writing on some show, I forget what it was, and I was leaving very late one night. I get into my car, start the car, and the radio comes on, and there's Art Bell, and he is saying the following. Sir, I am not saying that you're not the Antichrist. I'm merely pointing out that we had the Antichrist hotline open last week, and we got 16 calls, and none of them mentioned you. 1989-1990, that was a transitional period in America. The 80s were ending, and the culture was hungover from all of the hair gel, shoulder pads, and deficit spending. Let's take a perfect 80s film. In 1986, the biggest movie that year was Top Gun, That is the 80s summed up in a movie. 1989, the biggest movie, Tim Burton's Batman. Now you put those two movies side by side and you get a sense of our darkening zeitgeist. The mid-1980s was the heyday of squeaky clean TV shows like The Cosby Show. I know, I know. And such era definers as Dallas and Dynasty. In the spring of 1990, Twin Peaks took the country by storm. The story of a young dead girl surrounded by mystery and conspiracy. Over the course of the show, Twin Peaks would invoke UFO conspiracies, Project Blue Book, interdimensional beings, and, oh yeah, incest and child murder. On September 10th, 1993, two years and three months after Twin Peaks went off the air, the then-fledgling Fox Network premiered Twin Peaks' infinitely more user-friendly cousin, The X-Files. Inspired in part by the 1970s series Shack the Night Stalker, Chris Carter's The X-Files told the story of two FBI agents who alternated between cases involving paranormal phenomena while simultaneously navigating the murky currents of the dark, super-secret shadow government that operated within the, we'll call it, regular government. These dark federal forces were personified by the mysterious cigarette-smoking man. The X-Files was the perfect show for its era, nailing the growing cynicism Americans held for their government. And if you weren't necessarily cynical about the government, there was a burgeoning media infrastructure being created to help you become cynical about the government. After 12 years of occupying the White House, Republicans and the right-wing media echo chamber were outraged that Bill Clinton even existed, much less that he was the actual president and they did everything in their power to hound him out of office. Now, of course, they had a lot of help in this endeavor from Mr. Clinton himself. But there was a benign naivete to the X-Files. And 
to Coast to Coast AM. Yeah, the government was up to no good, but the no good was, you know, they weren't telling you where the UFOs were hiding. They weren't being forthcoming about employing remote viewers in secret mountain bases. Nobody was storming the White House to overturn an election or pretending to be a patriot by attacking the forces of the very government they were claiming to be a patriot of. But there was a sense that the shit was starting to come apart at the seams. It was all over the place. On February 26th, 1993, in New York City, six people were killed and thousands were injured when a van packed with explosives was detonated below the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The attack was mastermanded by Ramzi Youssef, who had trained with a terrorist organization that no one at the time knew anything about, called Al-Qaeda. On April 19th in 1993, in Waco, Texas, the FBI launched a tear gas assault on the compound of a religious cult under the leadership of a dude named David Koresh. His group, the Branch Davidians, had been in a 51-day standoff with the federal government. On April 19, 1995, in Oklahoma City, two years to the day after the Waco siege, not a coincidence, two American-born anti-government extremists and white supremacists, Natch, Terry Nichols, and Timothy McVeigh, detonated an explosive at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Now, up until that point, Art Bell had dipped his toe into discussions of anti-government militias and, you know, the Trilateral Commission's plans to enslave us. But after the Oklahoma City bombing, he backed way off. UFOs, Bigfoot, Elvis, you got it. Bell felt his show was entertainment, even if not everybody got the joke. It was commonly understood in conspiracy circles that the end of the world as we knew it was going to occur at midnight on December 31st, 1999, when the Y2K computer bug would crash the world's computers, allowing FEMA to declare martial law and establish the New World Order. Didn't happen. The end of the world as we knew it came one year, nine months, and 11 days later on the sunny, warm, Indian summer morning of September 11th, 2001. Incidentally, the mastermind of those attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was the uncle of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing mastermind, Ramzi Youssef. Didn't know that. Hidden flying saucers or not, Americans of good conscience stood by their government, at least until it lost its collective shit and invaded the wrong country in retaliation. Be that as it may, an era had ended. The X-Files went off the air some eight months later. Shows in the early 21st century wrestled with their own morality instead of just blaming mysterious bad guys. The Sopranos, the brilliant reboot of Battlestar Galactica, these shows were very indicative of the mindset of those years. Coast to Coast AM continued on, sometimes with Art Bell, sometimes without. In 1998, Bell announced his retirement from the show. His reason, and I quote, an event, a threatening, terrible event occurred to my family, which I could not tell you about. And because of that event and a succession of other events, what you're listening to right now is my final broadcast on the air. 
He returned 15 days later with no explanation. On April 1st, 2000, Bell once again announced his retirement. By this time, Coast to Coast AM was up to approximately 22 million listeners a night. And this was April 1st, so no one took him seriously. But he was serious. Bell's son had been kidnapped and assaulted by a substitute teacher. His child survived the assault, the teacher was convicted, sent to prison, and the school district was successfully sued for its negligent hiring practices. Bell returned to Coast to Coast AM eventually, but he retired again in 2002. This time, it was because of back pain. This went on and on and on. He'd come back, but for weekends. Or he'd substitute for the show's new host, and still current host, George Nori. He'd come back and host for the third Thursday of every fourth month. He would host if he saw a crow before lunch. Uh, you know, it was random. Art Bell retired from radio for good in 2015 to spend more time with his family. He was hospitalized in 2016 for a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and he did pass away at his home in 2018. Like his fictional spiritual cousin, Fox Mulder, Art Bell believed that the truth was out there, and he absolutely had a strong sense that something was coming. Of course, now that we all know what that something turned out to be, I think it's safe to say poor Art did not know the half of it. Lastly, on June 25th, 2021, the United States government released a report confirming that, although it held no definitive proof towards the existence of extraterrestrial life, it did have 143 reports of unidentified aerial phenomena that could not be explained. And these reports only dated back to 2004. So yeah, after all that time, the government just shrugs and says, oh, UFOs? Oh yeah, no, they're real. You didn't know that? Well, what about it? But again, by that time, we had other problems. about to witness the takeoff of the first manned rocket to outer space. We pick up the count. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero! And now, on with the show. It is a gray, cloudy morning high atop the Mulholland Drive view shelf here in sometimes sunny California. Although it is not June yet, at the time of this recording, this is what we call June gloom in Southern California. With the beginning of summer, it's uh, gray and kind of overcast up until about noon to two. And then it starts and that burns off uh, in, the, in the afternoon. And I'm talking to uh, a man who has written a book that the minute I saw this book, I was like, oh, he wrote this just for me. Um. And then, uh, and then I realized that I, uh, we had actually spoken about the book when he was researching it. Uh, it is called Fact, Fictions, and the Forbidding Predictions of the Amazing Criswell. Now, uh, uh, Criswell, as you all know, was, uh, is the first speaking part in Plan 9 from Outer Space, but he had a really, really full and interesting career in the 50s and 60s. Uh, up until the early 70s, he was a regular on The Tonight Show. He was a syndicated columnist. Um, he was just a great carny. 
from the get-go. And uh, this is full of amazing, uh, amazing, crazy anecdotes. And I'm really happy to welcome uh, the book's author, Edwin Lee Canfield. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Now, first, right out of the gate, uh, what possessed you to do a book about Criswell? Well, the first time I saw Criswell was in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Mm -hmm. And then um, I saw Tim Burton's Ed Wood. And then a friend of mine loaned me Criswell's first book of prediction. Criswell predicts to the year 2000 <laughs> in the year 2000. And um, so I started reading that. And then right off the bat, you know, his first prediction was on homosexual cities. And then it just went from there. <laughs> and I right. was like, this, this guy is nuts. I got to know more about him. And so I just started digging in. Uh, my original idea was to write a script for a biopic similar to Ed Wood about Criswell. Sure. And then I started digging in more and more and uh, thought, well, maybe this would just be good as a documentary. And then um, I kind of worked on that, made a demo of it, pitched it to HBO. They refused me, sent me a really nice rejection letter, though, <laughs> which I have, I'm going to have framed someday. What year, what year was that rejection letter sent <laughs> That was about 2005, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Well, and then I was like, well, I'm just going to do it as a book. And then yeah. um, as time permitted over the course of the last 20 years, I'd work on it as life allowed. And right. when I got new information and things like that. What do you, what do you do when you're not writing, uh, writing books? What are your, what is your, uh, form of gainful employment? I am a AV geek, I guess you would say. Uh -huh. I worked in audio video um, installation and uh, user end of AV most of my life. Right now, I oh, okay. work for a community college in technology support and AV support. Oh, perfect. Are you in Southern California? No, I live in Phoenix. Oh, okay. Yeah. Same thing. That's pretty dang close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I find fascinating about the, I mean, obviously, when you see plan nine, you don't even know if he's just a character that he, that they wrote, you know, you, you have to dig and you realize, no, this was a real guy. It was like a celebrity cameo. Um, and he was, you know, people always talk about Ed Wood being like a bottom feeder, which I, you know, I don't endorse that. Um, but Chriswell was a regular guest on the tonight show. Like he was, he was somebody. He wasn't nobody, to put it to put it bluntly. But I uh, just finished reading uh, Peter Goralnik's two-volume biography of Elvis Presley, and Criswell kind of reminds me of Colonel Tom Parker. He is a inveterate carny. Uh, he kind of he kind of got this shtick early in life, and and just committed committed to the bit <laughs> totally committed to it he lived it he you yeah. know, it wasn't just a character it was that's who he was that was an avenue of show business but my god it still is an avenue of show business uh where he started making predictions but really had a church like he he could have gone into creating a religion like ding dong there from scientology l ron hubbard um, like I could have easily seen Criswell just taking a slightly sharper turn and creating some sort of spiritualist church. 
He did. He dabbled in it. He did have a spiritualist church for a while. He founded the Criswell Religious Foundation for a while. I even have some drawings that aren't in the book because I discovered them after, um, you know, it went out to publish, but of uh, drawings, proposed drawings of a, the Criswell Religious Foundation. And I think it's, it would, would it have been interesting if his religion would have been the one that t- took off instead of Scientology. I think it would be a lot more fun. Than it. <laughs> It'd certainly be a lot more fun. And that's the one thing you don't get in a lot of religions is a sense of fun. Um, there's a great, uh, there's a great recollection right at the beginning of uh, the book about you. You spoke to a guy that lived in his apartment building. Uh, one of the things that Criswell did. Uh, in his later life, he owned an apartment building in addition to being Criswell. But everybody in the apartment building was supposed to like have dinner together. <laughs> yes, they would have uh, potlucks, Sunday potlucks, or right. whenever they decided to have dinner. And I think Halo was a big, you know, his wife yeah. was a big uh, advocate of that and really pushed that on the tenants as well. She was a vaudeville entertainer, a dancer. Uh, and they were married, and one of the recollections of the kid that lived in the apartment building was Criswell would either be dressed to the nines in his tuxedo, or we would just be walking around in a tank top and <laughs> tremendous boxer shorts, <laughs> really giant boxer shorts. And that Halo, by that time, uh, her body had uh, gotten away from her, and she was pretty overweight but would nonetheless walk around in a bikini and would dance atop the tables of these Sunday brunches with her, and I quote, navel the size of a half dollar. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that would have been quite a sight. So when you decided to, to write the book, you'd already done some research on the documentary. How do you go about find? you know, you, it's so well researched. Last month, I interviewed uh, the author of uh, the biography of Lawrence Tierney, and I am just fascinated by the the accumulation of information that is still available, and that you managed to track down these people. How did you go about? How did you meet? How did you find people that lived in his apartment building? Um, one of the internet was a wonder to help with that kind of research. Um, I, when I first started, I just started, you know, looking for any mention of Criswell whatsoever. And anybody that talked about him or said they had known him and things like that and contacted him, either emailed him at the time, phone as well, maybe even some snail mail. But, um, as the last 20 years progressed, the internet was huge help in contacting people and doing research, like with newspaper archives and finding articles and things like that. And eventually you, you landed upon people that lived with him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, uh, and, and it is, and what's beautiful about it is the same, that cast of characters all show up. Ed Wood, Forrest Ackerman, uh, Paul Marco, Milas in there. <laughs> it's like right. all, of, all of these people show up. But Criswell, of, of all of those people, before he too, he had a really legit career. And one of the people that sort of directed him into it was this guy, Norvell, the Hollywood astrologer. Who was who was Norvell, and when was he 
When was he at his peak? He was probably at his peak in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, and he was an astrologer to the stars. He had a number of people, Ronald Reagan, I can't think of any of the others offhand that he would consult with. They'd ask for his advice and things. And then um, then the, he, um, when Criswell and Halo moved to Hollywood, they um, announced themselves as Broadway stars, which, you know, of course, they weren't ever really Broadway stars. They did put on some plays, off-Broadway plays. But and they had, and it was the um, adaptation of the picture of Dorian Gray. Right. And, and then uh, Norvell played the lead of Dorian Gray. And that's how they became connected. And, think, and was this production of Dorian Gray critically acclaimed? Not at all. <laughs> you have the reviews in the book, and they're so brutal. I predict that politics will make stranger bedfellows than ever before. I fearlessly predict that the once politically inactive South will rise again in no uncertain terms. I predict that every vote south of the Mason-Dixon line could easily be conservative. I predict there will be two political parties in America. One will be the conservative party and the other will be the liberal party. There will be a clean-cut division which no one could conscientiously cross over. This startling trend will become most apparent before the next election and you will join heartily in this stand whether you want to or not. Now, don't say you won't, because I predict you will. What I find fascinating is that Norvell was... So this is the thing. It's the 40s. It's just after World War II. And being an astrologer, a fortune teller, a mystic, a psychic, is it's a legit avenue of show business. I mean, it, it's, it's basically what is depicted... In Nightmare Alley, um, yes. Only, uh, mm-hmm. only some people did it tongue in cheek, and some people like really committed. And and that's not unlike what Criswell was doing, uh, in, in or Norvell was doing. Uh, they were they were saying that they were predicting the future, and you could choose to believe them or not. Right, and, and those were uncertain times, so people were looking exactly. for those answers. Yeah, and and in the same way that. You know, we've talked about it before. Spiritualism came up right after the Civil War when everybody knew a lot of dead people and they really right. wanted to talk to people that were dead. These these things answer uh, answer their times. So I love that it's it's just a it's it's just a different aspect of show business. It's a it's a like a vent- you can be a ventriloquist, you can be a comedian, you can be a singer, a dancer, or a psychic. Like it's, right. it's all in there. Mm-hmm. But Norvell got arrested. Yes, he did. He uh, gave a reading to an undercover policewoman, and then, uh, and at the time, it was illegal to take money for fortune telling or you know palm reading, you know things like that. That's amazing to me. That and this is 1940s California palm readers, people that it was illegal to take money for it. Right, and um, yeah, so um, and they kind of worked it. uh, She talked about. how they would set these people up like Norvell and things and said, go in there like, Oh, I'm seeking advice. And then they'd give him some advice. She would give them money. And the next day they'd bust them. 
yeah, you have a thing in the book, and it's so it's so great, and it's why I live here. <laughs> it says, uh, by the time the mid-20th century came around, Southern California was known as being a breeding ground of new esoteric oddball alternative faiths and spiritual movements, such as spiritualism, the Fox sisters, occultism, theosophy, new thought, and countless temples of light UFO cults and all manner of things metaphysical. Shine a little light on UFO cults. This um, is well, so, I mean, you know, I'm, this well, is my and, alley. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. Because Chris, Criswell had a, a, didn't he have a UFO church at one point? He, him and some other UFO aficionados had the first flying saucer convention in Hollywood at the Hollywood Hotel there. And um, he was one of the main organizers, spoke there. And then it grew from there, and they moved to a larger facility to to uh, be able to accommodate the followers. And then eventually it moved to Giant Rock, California, out by Joshua Tree in Landers, California. And then those conventions were well attended up until the 60, late 60s, early 70s. Criswell predicted that UFOs would land there, and it would also be the place where World War III would be started. Uh-huh. And did, <laughs> yeah. did, did they think that UFOs were uh, were aliens, or was it also like a semi-religious thing? Was you know, Was God coming in a UFO? What was the... I never saw anything that tied it to religion or God in any way. Um, I think it was just, it was on everybody's mind and it was, uh, you know, something to talk about that, you know, so it was an easy thing for him to start making predictions on. And, and he hung out with all the UFO people, contactees and things like that. And this is forties and forties and fifties. This was like late forties and the early fifties. The first Mm -hmm. blush of uh, sort of UFO culture, for lack of Mm -hmm. a better term. And then, and then he connects with this guy, and and I say this, knowing my audience, then he connects with Eddie Deason lookalike Leo Guild. (laughs) 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 And who was Leo? Who was Leo Guild? Well, he started out as a gossip columnist, uh, wrote for the Hollywood Reporter, things like that. Then he started doing auto uh, biographies, celebrity biographies, some authorized, some not authorized. The first one was about Bob Hope. So that kind of was his first push right. into the mainstream. Where there's and life, he, there's Bob Hope was the name of it. Right. Yes, exactly. And then after that, he started doing more. He did uh, Barbara Payton, more controversial stars usually mm-hmm. he did one on fatty arbuckle the fatty arbuckle story right um eventually he barbara into- payton unlike fatty arbuckle barbara payton actually guilty of her <laughs> fatty arbuckle not <laughs> right um and then he had a long career of writing pulp novels for uh hallway house and things like that uh he kind of was a uh, start of the black exploitation uh novels and things through Holloway House. Right, that Ed Wood sort of followed him into. He had this character, and he just finds any way he can to put him into the media. Right. You know, he has books, he has a column, he has record albums, he appears in uh, he appears in movies. He gets, start, sure, we'll start a church. Hey, no, we'll start a UFO church. We'll, we'll, start, start, <laughs> we'll do this. We'll do this. Um, 
uh, and then he starts giving uh, advice to, you know, people start writing, writing him and asking for advice. And there's one where a woman goes, my, I want to buy this house, but I'm afraid my husband won't want to buy it. And he goes, he's already bought it. He just hasn't told you. <laughs> this stuff rarely comes true, but people still come back. I predict that you will not be able to turn this record off as they turn me off on the Johnny Carson program with my following prediction. I predict every able-bodied man in America will be asked to contribute to a sperm bank. This will later be used in artificial insemination if and when a holocaust should occur. This sperm bank will be open 24 hours a day and a night depository would be accepted. This for the eventuality that the male of the species might become extinct. I don't know if you're familiar with Phil Hendry. Phil, Phil Hendry is a genius. And he used to have a radio show here in L.A. He's, on the inter- he's more online now, but he used to have a radio show here on KABC, 790 AM KABC, the early aughts, late 90s. And he, through having a mic and a phone, would play his own guests. And he was brilliant at it. Like you, if you listen to them, you can't believe it's just one person. And the, and the guests were obviously would start off very kind of, it would be a controversial topic, but then it would get more just slowly crazier and crazier, you know? And like he would have this one woman named Margaret Gray, that he would play. And she was the president of a homeowners association. And she was putting forth, a, she wanted to put forth a law that would mean that fire trucks and police cars lowered their sirens when they went through her neighborhood because they were wealthier <laughs> and they didn't want to be disturbed. <laughs> and it, it, but it would just grow and grow and grow. And, and people would go bananas and they would call and, and it was so entertaining. You can hear it online, but towards the end of the run, the reason I'm telling you this is he would say, this is fake. I'm Margaret. Just so you know, this isn't real. I'm Margaret. Okay. Let's take some calls. Yeah. And people would still like, <laughs> like right. how dare you? <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was just like people. And, and that's sort of the, the genius of it. People want to believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? People want to believe it. Now in Everyone knows Criswell from Plan 9. Um, in the book, you talk about Christine Jorgensen. And is that where Criswell and Ed Wood first came into contact? No. Uh, uh, you, Criswell you're sort of Christine setting up the Paul Marco. Somehow right. Paul Marco. Maybe that connection came from right. Ed Wood, you know, Paul Marco knowing Christine Jorgensen. Um, but give, yeah, a little, they, give a little background on Christine Jorgensen for people. Who well, she know. was the... Um, first publicized um, transsexual operation uh, to turn from a man to a woman. And then, of course, Ed Wood made, uh, um, escaping me right now. Glenn you know, or Glenda. Glenn or Glenda. Right. And um, which really wasn't based on Christine Jorgensen. It was supposed to be the Christine Jorgensen, but it came the Ed Wood story. Um, <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> very true. Uh, and so... Um, and then Again, she, she, he's an auteur. He tells right, right. 
Um, and so, you know, that she had that notoriety. And um, Chris, well, you know, he played both sides of the field, as, you know, I reveal in the book. You know, uh -huh. he was married, but that was kind of a marriage of convenience. So, um, and I'm not saying that him and Christine Jorgensen had anything going on, but, uh -huh. you know, that was kind of the circles he ran in. But as the old saying goes, Criswell didn't care what side of the street he drove on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but but he is married, and his wife is a, a very fascinating character in her own right. Tell us a little bit about uh, the very beautiful, by the way, Halo Meadows. Um, they met in New York City when uh, she was writing and producing plays off-Broadway as well. Um, they met there. They started working on the Dorian Gray production together. They put out three books on how to succeed on in Broadway and on Tin Pan Alley, although they had very, I would say, not, you know, any success at all. You know, their plays would not run very long, right. things like that. They weren't great. Arthur Miller, they weren't. No, they weren't. And um, so, yeah, so they became, you know, they became very close, worked together on all, you know, those plays and things. And then. In 1940, they moved to Hollywood together, mm -hmm. and probably just because you know she had just as much ambition as him to be famous and to be a celebrity. Right. And were they? Do you think they ever were man and wife, or was it more like? A, I think it was more of a common law thing because I uh -huh. haven't found. Or, or any... I, let me let me re, let me rephrase that. Did they ever have like a romantic relationship? Um, maybe early on, uh -huh. but not even later in life from people that I talked to that live there. He slept in his coffin. She slept in another room in a bed and kind of um, buried the lead there, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he slept in a coffin, you say. <laughs> yes, do, do tell. <laughs> he said he felt comfortable sleeping in a coffin. He said it came from his childhood of Growing up in a mortuary family, he came and, from a he came from a mortuary family, mm -hmm. um, and purported to sleep in a coffin. Mm -hmm. And he just felt comfortable doing that, and you know, owned at least one, maybe two coffins. You Can know, you roll over given, in a coffin? I don't know if you could. And I so yeah, I I couldn't do like that. when people say uh, like, yeah, oh, he's roll rolling over. over, he's <laughs> rolling over in his grave. Well, that depends on the coffin, <laughs> right? Yeah, how big you need it is. a you need a double, double Y. Right. You need a double Y. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that that's. I mean, that's fascinating. I can see how a coffin would be comfortable to sleep in, because people, if you feel. You you feel if it's I mean the closed lid is a different thing but right. like like you feel kind of hemmed in and cuddled in there with the walls. My yes, daughter when she was young, do you know what a weighted blanket is? Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. My wife got one, and it's amazing. <laughs> it's like it's this blanket, but it has like sandbags in it, like miniature sandbags, and it's really heavy. But you just feel like. You feel like you're in the palm of God. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. My son has one, so I've experienced it myself. Yeah, yeah I de very... definitely know what it's like. Yeah. So yeah. a coffin could kind of give that that little closeness, that kind yeah. of comfort. He was a, and... Yeah, he was a more. He was from a more. Was his father a mortician or his family? Well, he claimed that for right. many many years, and then um, I found evidence, and people said no, he worked in insurance his entire life. Criswell's father did, so that was just part of his legend although the criswell which was his 
mother's maiden name, they were a mortuary family. Okay, back so, east. He, so there yeah, was he a clearly connection. had some exposure mm, to it, right? Because he clearly was around coffins at some point. Uh-huh. Yep, and liked it. And Myla Nurmi uh, told you a story about Criswell helping her when her mother passed. Yes, um, her mother passed. She didn't, you know, know how to handle doing a funeral and things like that. And Criswell said, well, I come from a um, funeral family. I'll help you out and arranged everything with the with the um, cemetery and all of that. Uh, got mortars, brought in mortars and things like right. that. And the story of how they met, she had actually told me uh, the story of how they met. And it's really, uh, it, it, I, I have to say um, in your, in your book, there's a, there's a, a part of it that's sort of an oral history where you just, you mm-hmm. kind of have these um, interviews with people and boy, it, you had to be transcribing these things. Cause I can hear Myla's voice. Like I just, it's like, Oh yeah. No, he definitely spoke with her. Um, not I, of course. Um, well, you helped me get in touch with her yeah. uh, initially. Uh, and then I sent her a letter uh, with some that questions was, about That was Chris the only well. way to do it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and she replied. <laughs> and then there was a gentleman named John Whalen who had been working on a Criswell book. And he did an interview with her as well. And he shared that oh, with that's me. lovely. Yeah. So that's a kind of a combination of what I got from her and his interview yeah. with her as well. Yeah. So tell the story of how they met. Cause it's really great. Well, uh, she says that she was getting off work at KABC after the vampire show late and she would fast before the show. So she could squeeze her waist way yeah. in there. 17 inch waist, 17 inches. And then, so she would be famished starving after the show. And she would run over to the Hollywood ranch market for a chili dog. Um, <laughs> literally then, would <laughs> literally would wrap the show. And would be, I mean, it's, it's safe to say that Myla had some food issues, um, uh, would, would wrap the show and in the full outfit, cause she didn't want to wait. She was so hungry. She would run, literally run across the street to where the Hollywood ranch market was, which was literally across the street and get a chili dog and wolf it down. Yeah. And one night she goes there and Criswell is standing there in his tuxedo coming from a gig probably. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he just introduced himself to her and said, I love your show. And I have a friend named Mae West that would like to meet you. And then she of course said, well, she fired me already from the Mae West show at one point you yeah. know, in the, in the past. He was friends with, he was very, he was, Criswell was very <laughs> close with Mae West mm-hmm. and Milo was in the chorus of a show on Broadway starring Mae West and Mae West did have her fired because she felt Milo was upstaging her. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, but Mae West was a fan of the Vampira show and used to send Mae West did not know that Vampira was Mila, did did not know that she had fired her from a previous right, gig right. and would mm. send her food. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, but she, I just love the, the idea. Like, yeah, it's 1954. You're walking down the street and there's Criswell and Vampira at a hot dog stand like one, of the, <laughs> one of the mornings. It's so good. I, I want to be in that world so badly. Yeah. Um, um, so how did he finally connect with uh, Ed Wood? Was it the Brown Derby, uh, Brown Derby Fridays? It was, it was before called? that. And Ed Wood was actually a director of the his show of Criswell's Los Angeles television show for a couple of episodes. Okay. And from what I've read, there was other directors as well that went on to make other right. B movies. And yeah, things. Ed did direct some TV. Yeah. And so 
And it's kind of evidenced by people saying there's not any, I haven't been able to find any tapes of the original, you know, Los Angeles television show, but people say that the opening of Plan 9 is exactly the way that the Criswell predicts television show would open. Ah, greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives, whether we want to or not. And remember, my friend, these future events will affect you. The future is in your hands. So let us remember the past, honor the present, and be amused at the future. It was the same time Corla Pandit came to prominence. Corla Pandit was an... Uh, a, an organist, keyboard player, um, who wore a turban and was, you know, purportedly the sort of mystic uh, character from uh, the far the 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 far east. Um, and he uh, he's actually in Ed Wood. He is the guy mm-hmm. playing the keyboards at the party after Bride of the Monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was he was none of those things. Corla Pandit was a uh was advertised as a french indian musician from new delhi uh his real name was john red and he was a light-skinned african-american dude from missouri (laughs) yeah (laughs) and i I can sum that up in two words showbiz that's exactly exactly no one is who they no one is no one is who they seem um uh Myla Nermi was actually uh Myla Nermi from Petsamo, Finland was actually Myla Siranyemi from Gloucester, Massachusetts. Right. So then they put him in Plan 9 and but they were pals and that's what I love about the story it's what I really love about the film Ed Wood is that uh, all these guys hung out. Yeah. Uh yeah, Tor they... John Tor Johnson, Criswell, Ed Wood Corla Pandit, uh, not Corla Pandit, Paul Marco, like mm-hmm. they were all friends. Yeah, they and hung they out, just... party. Yeah, the Brown Derby Friday nights and everything. Um, and then uh, May West gave Criswell a Cadillac limousine for a dollar, and so they would take that de- up and down the strip, you know, club hopping. That's amazing. So uh, Ed, over the course of uh, uh, after Plan Nine begins uh a sort of a, a downward a, a a downward spiral um a wide spiral but a but a inevitable one um but Criswell and Ed never Criswell they were always close they never they never he was a very loyal guy um there's a great quote in uh in the book from a guy named John Gilmore mm-hmm. I'm going to read this quote and then I want you to tell me a little bit about John Gilmore Sure. Uh, John Gilmore says, I was, this is probably in the late sixties or early seventies when Ed was frequently, uh, suffering the effects of T many martunis. (laughs) I was with Ed Wood on the grass at Santa Monica and Crescent Heights by the movie theater that used to be there. Ed was drinking and Criswell pulled up in a car to tell Ed there was a dead man on the streetcar tracks over by Gardner and Sunset, and a dog was pissing on the dead man. Criswell thought it would have been a remarkable sequence in Ed's next movie. He urged Ed to get some pictures of the dead man, but Ed had trouble getting up off the grass. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's all you need to know. <laughs> right. Who was John Gilmore? Well, I first came across John Gilmore with his book, Laid Bare. Not, are you familiar with the Laid Bare book? Was John Gilmore, did he work at Googie's? I don't know that he okay. worked there. There I is a book about there. There is a book about a guy that worked at, Go- at yeah. Googie's. No, so tell me about Laid Bear. Um, it's kind of a Hollywood tell-all where he tells these stories about all the celebrities that he had been intimate with and friends with and helped with. He claims he wrote uh, Easy Rider originally. That was his idea. Sex sure, with- it was. <laughs> <laughs> claims to have had sex with James Dean, um, new That's James possible. Dean in New York. Um, and, uh, I mean, Laid Bear was one of his more known books. He also had two other books on James Dean. He had a book on Charles Manson. He had a book on Marilyn Monroe. Um, a lot of celebrity-type books. And, right. uh, sort, of a, sort of a Kenneth Anger-type one. Right. Say, he yeah. was kind of a Kenneth Anger. R.I.P. Um, yes. Um, and that's sad because I'd hoped to talk to Kenneth Anger about John Gilmore at some point because that's You're actually a- one of my projects that I'm— Quite literally, his, uh, a day, quite literally a day late. <laughs> yeah, yes, one day late. Um, kind of like I was with Paul Marco. I didn't get to interview him because he oh. passed away the day before I was in L.A. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, you know Jason, obviously. Yes, yes. Okay. Jason was a huge help with the book. Um, Jason's the it, best. Jason yeah, and Salako. Yeah, yes, guy. yes. Um, and um, But yeah, I do John, know one thing about Paul Marco, for those of you who are like, Paul Marco played Kelton the Cop in all of Ed Wood's movies, certainly most famously in Plan 9. Um, Paul, towards the end, suffered some psychosis and uh, called the LAPD to come to where he lived because the dog people in the walls were being too loud. Wow. I know. That's gotta, <laughs> wow. That's got to turn up in something. Yeah. Um, but John Gilmore, he had mentioned knowing Vampira or Myla in Laid Bear. And so that was the reason I got in touch with him because I figured, and Ed Wood, he claimed to have known Ed Wood as well. And so that's what the reason I got in touch with him. And, you know, at that, at that time I was working as a documentary and he was really helpful and really forthcoming with these stories. And then later I, uh, got back in touch with him when I decided to go in the direction of a book and super helpful. I met him one time when I was out in LA, we went and had pizza dinner one time, super nice guy, but he's full of shit. Um, pretty much everything he wrote is bullshit. Uh, kind of like Criswell. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, a lot of Hollywood Babylon, uh, research was not Kenneth Anger's strong suit. No, you can say no. that right out of the gate. Oh, my friend, coming events have already cast their shadows, and whether you believe it or not, this is all to be a part of your incredible future. John Gilmer had made these claims about Myla Nermy and knowing her and hanging out with her and James Dean and things like that. Um, and I recently spoke to someone that was good friends with Myla, and he had given her a copy of Laid Bear. And she went through it and made notes, said, this is a lie. This did not happen. I never even met this guy. So, um, yeah, she would know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the interesting things about that. And so, you know, um, after a while, I'm thinking, well, maybe those stories he told me about Criswell and Edward are bullshit as well. And I 
tend to think they probably are. Uh-huh. But they, they make good copy. <laughs> well, that's true. And, and and that brings to mind, there's a lot of stuff from Ed Wood. And you have a photo of it in the book. The the Plan 9 from Outer Space album mm-hmm. soundtrack that I have, but I have a different cover. There are liner notes from Ed on the back. Mm-hmm. Did he write those? Because I don't think he did, because that album has a turkey on the label but that didn't happen until i think 83 right ed died in 78 mm-hmm. yeah yeah i would that's my think- that's my colombo for the day <laughs> <laughs> well i believe you're you're onto something there because uh if you really read it it's not really the way ed wrote not either. at all not at all no. yeah yeah uh yeah um but it's uh it's certainly i mean it as you say, it's entertaining and it makes mm-hmm. good copy. Like, uh, right. As Colonel Tom Parker would say, uh, he was a good snowman. <laughs> yep. Um, but now this is in the book. Is this true? March 1st, 1963. March of 1963. Criswell made an appearance on the Jack Parr program, which was, I guess that was after he left the Tonight Show, but he had another late night show. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he left the Tonight Show in 61 or 62. Criswell predicted that President Kennedy would not run for re-election in 1964 because of something that would happen to him in November of 63. Um, I have never seen, I've seen a couple of uh, episodes of Jack Parr with Criswell on there, and I've never come across that prediction. Right. And this was, of course, cover copy after the fact. Sure, uh, sure, sure. So I kind of... And I've never seen anything in print either of him making that right. prediction as well. So I yeah. think that was an after the fact prediction. I always thought it was with it. No one predicted 9 11 on 9 10. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I didn't realize uh, <clears throat> Orgy of the Dead, which is Ed Wood's film, I believe it's the second film with Criswell in it. I could be wrong. Night the third. The, Criswell is in Night of the Ghouls. Correct. Okay. Orgy of the Dead is basically an excuse to show bosoms. Uh, and I like the fact that Criswell was like, great. I'm there. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's no way you can dress Orgy of the Dead up as anything other than, uh, I, I guess you, what, what it would be called at the time, a, a nudie cutie or a, right. a, a, a titty movie. Sure. Yeah. Um, it does include my favorite Criswell line, torture, torture, it pleasures me. <laughs> um, but I but I do like that uh, he's just like, yeah, I'm good. Let's do it. Right, yeah. And that the cape he's wearing was Bella Lugosi's cape from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> yes, it was, yeah. Well, and and that, that it's in color as well, which I like about it, because you get to see yeah. Criswell in full blazing yeah. color. And it's good. I mean, the and the film... Is you know it's like it's it's not it looks really good. <laughs> it does, yes, yeah. it has a really good look. And I think yeah. part of that is, and it's mentioned in the book, is Ted V. Michaels, um, you know, did the lighting and things like that. He was one of the production assistants on the film as well. So right. I think that helped. And then, not that he's anything spectacular, but well, you he's, know. <laughs> he's Ted Michaels. He's Ted Michaels. But and then again, I love the you know all of the characters show up. For, then new nudism enthusiast Forrest Ackerman rears his head. 
This is what's amazing about Orgy of the Dead. It's how long is it? 53 minutes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something it's, like that. It's like a stripper dancing with a guy in a mummy suit, then a stripper dancing with a guy in a wolfman mask. And then Forrest Ackerman says, This is a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Ed made it a book. And, it a book. and by the way, if you want to buy that book, you better have some money because it right. is not cheap. Yes. Yes. The original copies are very expensive and not yeah. easy to find. Yes. Have you ever heard of, uh, I believe the book is called Mama's Diary? No. Yeah, Ed wrote a book called Mama's Diary that was made into a film called Operation Red Light. Yeah. It was never kind of. I haven't heard of those. Yeah. Another, you know, more boobs. Mm, More boobs. Yeah. But yeah, this is what, this is Criswell's dialogue from Orgy of the Dead. This is a story of those in the twilight time. Once human, now monsters in a void between the living and the dead. Monsters to be pitied. Monsters to be despised. A night with the ghouls. The ghouls reborn from the innermost depths of the world. I think Ed probably helped with that. Um, Yeah. But it's almost exactly, not exactly the same, but kind of the same way he introduced Plan 9 and Night of the Ghouls as well. You know, oh, did so he also? I, I have to, yes, gosh, I have yeah, to watch he, Night of the Ghouls. Yeah, he rose up out of the coffin to introduce uh, Night of the Ghouls. Now, we were talking about what Ted uh, Mickles uh, did for uh, Orgy of the Dead. According to the poster, it was filmed in gorgeous and shocking Astrovision and Sexicolor. <laughs> Um, did you interview Forrest Ackerman or did you ever have, I didn't, uh, I never got that opportunity now. Uh, there, there's a book there, uh, for, for, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Charles Colum. Colum. Charles Colum. Charles Colum. Now is, is, uh, is, is he still around? He is. Uh, he's in Austria right now. Um, but he is still around. He What's he doing the, in Austria? Uh, he's in a theological school. Whoa. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, he's a very devout Catholic. Um, oh, okay. And, you know, that church, uh, Our Lady of the Blessed Sacrament, I believe it is, is right there by where Criswell lived. And that's one right. reason Charles and his family moved into the Criswell apartments was access to that church, being that close to that Catholic church. Oh, okay. Well, that all tracks. Charles Kaloum has a lovely quote in the book regarding uh, Halo Meadows. Real name Myrtle... Myrtle Stonecipher. Myrtle Louise Stonecipher. His wife was quite mad. Mrs. Criswell had a huge standard poodle named Buttercup, which she was convinced was the reincarnation of her cousin Thomas. She spent a great deal of time sunbathing, which, given her size, was not too pleasing a sight. She had a belly button as big as a silver dollar. <laughs> Other podcasts reach for the sky. David Goldbaum. We barely try. 
This has been the Dana Gould Hour, brought to you by the Internet. Music by Andy Paley, with Jake Posner behind the board. Produced by Jeff Fox. Graphic design and web production by Spencer Hunt and Segan Friend. Sound editing and post-production by Jalinda Palmer and Joe Napolitano. Hey, if you like the show, why don't you drop us a line at show at danagould.com. Tom Kenny speaking.